I'm Jane Goodall, and this is No Denying It, a UN Climate Action Podcast. Turn the shower off when you shampoo. Stop watering your lawn, or get rid of your lawn entirely. If you live in a place where you can take potable running water for granted, you've likely heard of this advice. But one quarter of the world isn't so lucky. Poor infrastructure is one culprit, but climate change is rapidly becoming more of a factor. Our warming planet's new weather patterns are outpacing water systems designed for the old weather. In China, 420 million people, more than the population of the United States, lack safe drinking water. Zoom out to the entire globe and two billion people don't have access. This includes millions in Africa and India. Our guest today thinks about this a lot. My name is Xiaoyuan Charlene Ren, and I am the founder and director of MyH2O Water Information Network, which is a Chinese-based NGO that works on rural drinking water quality issues across China. Charlene was born and raised in Beijing. But basically every winter or summer, I would go back to my hometowns in the rural areas. A region called Shandong. I'm told it's a part of China that has historically had mild weather. Dry and cold winters and like relatively warm summers, but not like crazy hot. But because of climate change, Northern China is becoming a more challenging place to live, so I'm told. Generally, what climate change is doing to China is that it's making the weather more extreme in different directions. In the northern part, as we mentioned, it's more arid. There's more droughts. And in the southern part, there will be potential more risks for floods. I know that more frequent droughts have damaged crops in the fields in northern China. And the droughts have left herders struggling to find water for their sheep and cattle. Water shortages have worsened the kind of problems Charlene's nonprofit works on. Problems with the water that people drink. Charlene's path to working on water issues and climate adaptation started when she got involved with my organization, Roots and Shoots, when she was a student. And got elected as president, sort of by accident, because they had no one else. Well, she wouldn't have been chosen if she hadn't demonstrated leadership qualities. Anyhow, the new role introduced her to a whole new set of issues for the first time. I had no idea what environment was, no idea what climate change was. I always felt like, oh, like the environment, isn't that something the government's supposed to be caring about? Like, why should I care about that? Like, how does it relate to me as a high school kid? She tells me that when she got started learning about these environmental topics, she found them fascinating. It was like a portal opened up, seeing the world in an entirely new way that's more full of kind of the, this relationship between human and nature and all of that. It felt like it gave you a wider perspective of our existence and our very small existence within kind of the entire history of the planet. And it made you understand your place better, made you feel really humble and want to work a lot to preserve the well-being of this planet that has existed so many ages. Here's more of our conversation with Charlene Wren. She spoke with our producer, Rachel Ward. 
Can you talk a little bit about what MyH2O is and how it works and maybe like what the inspiration behind it was? I was doing my master's at MIT and my research project at that time was focusing on India. So it was related to India's water and sanitation system and government and NGO partner database that was being created by the National Informatics Center, the NIC of India. So I was looking into that database and how that database is helping to guide better governmental decisions regarding the overall water and sanitation sector. And I went to India a lot. And it also made me question like, oh, what about in China? Like, how is it in China? Like, are the solutions that we think are viable for rural communities, like, are they available for these communities? So I had all these questions, but because I was so far away, like, I wasn't able to take a lot of those actions. But then I realized, oh, but like, we have the China Youth Climate Action Network, right? They have a bunch of these young people. They are just waiting to do things. What about if we send them into the rural communities? Like, can they be the eyes be the mouth to, 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 to ask the questions, to see what's happening and to make those voices heard to a wider population that might not really understand what's going on in these communities that are potentially forgotten by the public. So it was sort of that idea initially and that we wanted to like make the stories heard and let people know what exactly is happening across rural China and are they getting their basic needs met? So you had this idea to... Um empower young people to collect data. What does that actually look like in the field now? Yeah, yeah. So now the organization, we want to help rural communities solve their drinking water issues to get them the type of water that they have the basic right to have, clean drinking water. We divided our project into several different components. One is the fieldwork part, right? Like we send a lot of these student teams into the field to collect the data, to collect the needs of these villagers and to basically get those information available and compile it into these like annual reports to kind of analyze what's the situation going on. Like in this particular field, is the water getting better or is it becoming worse? Like what are some of the common trends that we see and how can we improve the overall governance, right? So that's more of an advocacy work. We also realized that just analyzing, just taking data, making voices is not enough because what's the solution then? Because the villagers keep asking us like, oh, you now have the information, like what next, right? Is there something immediately beneficial for them? And so we decided to kind of develop another project focusing just on the solutions, which is actually helping to connect and develop solutions for communities that are like on the top priority list for needing solutions, like communities that have very apparent pollution cases or very vulnerable populations. And then we find resources from like the social sector or the business sector or just foundations in general, like any sort of public resources available. We help fundraise for that so that village can get the solution that they've always wanted. We kind of act as the link to make the solutions really happen on the ground. And lastly, since 2019, we also started building a map that tracks every single location where our teams has gone to that is giving us foundation to make these data available in the long run, easier to analyze, easier to consolidate, and easier to interpret and make more meaningful impact. And when we talk about water, we're talking about 
drinking water that is largely coming from groundwater, like wells? Yeah, yeah. So because in many of the villages, especially villages that are in the northern side of China, where there isn't very much abundant like spring water or natural water, right? So groundwater wells is still a relatively common source of drinking water. It's either like decentralized wells where every single household will dug their own like shallow groundwater wells to drink on their own. Or it could be like a community well, like the community digs a well that's like much deeper. And then they kind of build a pipeline system that pumps from that deep well to every single household that's within that village. So these water sources, whether it's like a public water source or like a private water source, groundwater sources are still one of the more common ones for the overall the northern side of China. But if you go on to more on the southern side, spring water becomes more common, like spring water that's coming off of mountains or even like rainwater where you harvest and collect rainwater uh, to drink during the rainy seasons. And what are some of the challenges that pop up in the water? Like what are some of the issues that are causing concerns around health or um, safety? Yeah, yeah. So there's a number of different issues, right? Like, first of all, it could just be like water quality challenges that's just inherent within the water, like something that's in the geologic structures, right? For example, in some of the villages, there's like fluoride contamination or chromium contamination or or things like that. So that would be one thing. And then apart from these things that are kind of just naturally occurring, there are also like human-centric sort of pollution that happens in the water. And one of the common ones would be uh, agricultural contamination, It could be runoff fertilizers, or it could even be pesticides that you can discover in like surface water runoff from the fields or even like shallow groundwater wells. You can detect like pesticides in it, right? Like that could be a lot of risk associated with that. And then you would have industrial contamination, right? So those are for more industrial villages, industrial communities. And interestingly enough, these are also villages that are more well off. Right. Because the villagers would have more of an income or the people less be performing farming. They would more be kind of hired by the local industries, but the industry would also be polluting where their home is. So that relationships become more complicated in a way because you depend on that industry for the well-being, but they're also polluting your environment. And in cases that we've seen, for example, in one of the villages we've been to, there is like local like gas wells and like coal mining industries. And then when we tested for the groundwater, we were able to test like hydro petroleum within the groundwater system. Like some of it is like above safety level, some of it isn't, but that's just not something that you should be finding in your groundwater either way, right? Like it's just something that's not supposed to be there. But then there's also challenges with the management of water. Like even though maybe the water is clean, but then because of like poor management, it's very common for water to come out of the pipe, like floating with all sorts of particles at like high levels of E. coli or other types of contamination just because the water storage system hasn't been cleaned. The water pipelines hasn't been cleaned sufficiently. That happens. Uh, I remember one of the schools we went to when you ask the kid like what the co- what color the water is, they would say it's like white. But these are also kids that would drink straight from the tap because when the kids are like tired, they like run around, right? They don't wait for the water to boil to drink like hot water, wait for it to cool down. They don't have that patience. They just turn on the faucet and drink it directly. So that's definitely a relatively high level risk that you have with like the storage and the provision of water. And sometimes this risk uh, is combined with another risk more on the shortage of water side, 
It's generally because there's a shortage of water that people can't directly use water that's supplied immediately. They have to store it somewhere. That's also like very common in a lot of the northern part of China.、Uh, many of these villagers actually have a water cellar, like an underground water cellar that stores rainwater or groundwater whenever they have water, so that when their water stops. They would drink from that water cellar. So when they open the water cellar, that w- water could be like water from like five years ago mixed with water from one year ago mixed with water from yesterday, right? Like it's、uh, like a cellar that they rarely clean sufficiently. Basically, it's、uh, a risk that happens because of shortage of water. These two causes are intertwined. So all of these are different challenges that we see, but it's not easy for us to tackle every single one of them. So we mostly focus on ones that are with the kind of the management, the hardware, or the agricultural contamination side. We focus less on the industrial pollution side because it's more complicated. And there's actually a whole bunch of other nonprofits that are working just on industrial pollutions. So generally, when we see cases like that, we would refer to them to see if there's anything that they would like to take on. So there are other nonprofits that are like really good at doing these sort of litigation advocacy for industrial contamination, getting the government's awareness.、Mm-hmm. Sounds like you're dealing with like a huge range of challenges, which means a huge range of solutions. I wonder if you could walk me through. One issue that you discovered through testing, and then the solution that you guys set in motion. Yeah, so this was a site that we had in rural Hebei. Initially, when we went there,、uh, we realized that for this village, their problems with was slightly with water shortage. But for some reason, they were also only providing drinking water like for one hour a day. So we kind of asked like the villagers why they were doing that, and they would say like one of the key reasons is the pipe system is really old, and if you like use it for a long enough time, it gets broken quicker, and they weren't able to collect enough money to repair the system. So even within that one hour a day, the water that comes Out is not the ideal quality, and also they would say it tastes like really salty. <laughs> yeah, like they can even taste that. And we were able to report that issue to one of our local partners、um, within Beijing, and they were able to help us sponsor a local water station. And so we thought about like, okay, if we put a water station in place, it treats the water, but can it make the system more sustainable? And one of the ways that we decided was to use a card and charge the water at a minimum fee. But then the fee feeds back into the community, so so that water station is managed by a local community organization, and then the fee that comes out of it、uh, gets put into a common pool, and then that money can go into、uh, repairing the local water systems, right? And that can go into all sorts of infrastructure improvement. Uh, activities that the local community can together as a collective agree as long as they agree on it. So kind of it's just that little infrastructure that you put in, it revives the entire system. To rather than like oh no one's willing to take care of it, now it's something that people can take care of it as a collective. I know you guys aren't. Looking for the effects of climate change isn't like explicitly a part of your mission, but I wonder if you see things that might begin to tell a story of of a climate impact. 
Yeah. So one thing that we look for when we go into the villages is like, how are these villages dealing with water shortages? Like, are there trends that they're seeing, and are there protective measures that are taken by the local communities to face more extreme droughts, to、uh, kind of buffer that dry period, right? I remember in one of the villages we went to, they had a water reservoir that was sufficient before, but in recent years, as the drought become more severe, that reservoir isn't big enough anymore. There are drought periods where there are way longer, and then they they would use up all the water from that reservoir, and they have to find other ways to get water. They have to go to other villages or go up the mountains and all of that. So basically, the reservoir that was built before now don't suffice, and they have to think about ways to to expand it. And so we see that as the type of adaptations that many of these villages have to think about as、uh, weather conditions change, climate conditions change. Like, are their water systems ready to adapt to these more extreme types of weathers? And that's sort of the、um, climate adaptation work that, like, a lot of other organizations are also looking at. And we see. Glimpse of it in some of the villages that we have been to, but we would love to understand it more on a broader scope to see what is the wider trend and are the villages ready. Yeah, I could see how that would lead people to start doing water practices that aren't aren't ideal. I'm curious about what you've learned doing this project. That if there's somebody out there who is seeing an issue that they want to start using data or monitoring and collecting information in order to tackle it, what is something that you would want them to know going into it? Like maybe something that you've learned that you think、mm-hmm. would be valuable to pass on. I think for starters, it's really important to learn what is the priority that you want to achieve with the collection of this data. Like, do you want to collect accurate, like meaningful and scientific data, right? Like, do you want that to be the goal, or do you feel like the collection process itself is important? Like, because because sometimes citizen science, right? It's like the, the education part is in the data collection process, is in the participation process. Is through that participation, people start to understand things about themselves, right? If you want as many people. Uh, being involved as possible, then you have to make it easy to collect. You have to make it fun, make it engaging. I see a lot of kind of organizations that like, oh, you want to take a snapshot of like trash you see on the street, and that's like very interesting. You take a picture of the trash, you pick it up, and that's like a whole campaign that you're doing, and everyone gets really excited. But if you want it to be like really, really scientific, relatively rigorous, then you have to be more in control of this thing. So then you have to decide which is the route you want to take and what is the more important goal that you want to achieve, right? Do you want to do research with that data? Do you want to do advocacy? Do you want to use that data to to, to guide decisions?、Mm-hmm. You've touched on this a little, but I wonder if you could just say what the goal is when you do the citizen science part of it. Like, what are you hoping people will take away from the project and and will result from that? Yeah, I think for us, we are mobilizing young people in the collection of these information, right, to go into the villages. So it's really in that process that I see these kids start to understand, like other communities, start to have stronger empathy and start to understand the relationship between the environment and themselves. Much like how I start to understand that when I was doing Roots and Shoots, when I was doing the Climate Youth Action Network, and these young people start to take initiatives themselves. 
For example, in the building the solutions, I remember one particular team. They were、uh, teaching at one rural school, so they participated in our project, tested their water, and find out there are risks with their water. And then they went on our platform and fundraised for that specific school. They said, "I want to build something for the school. I、uh, like we want the school to have the type of water quality that these kids deserve." And we want them to have a、uh, right to like a healthy life. So, so, so they did all the publicity. They made a bunch of posters, and they were able to raise quite a bit of funding to support the purchasing of a water purification device. And then we were able to report this case to some of our corporate sponsors. And one sponsor decided they want to match that funding for that school. And so now the school has not just like a water purification device; they actually have a water room with heater, so that the kids in that school can actually, for the first time, wash their hands with warm water in the winter and drink warm water in the winter. And that's an initiative sort of led by the students. So that's kind of the cases we want to see more. It's kind of these students initiating the sites, these students taking on the projects, and they making、uh, these issues、uh, happen. Right, because、um, over、uh, like at at the end,、uh, what we can do is limited. We are only here to link resources. We are only here as a platform. But it's really through that citizen science process that raises their kind of citizenship awareness in their mind that they feel responsible for the well-being of this entire country, of this entire planet. That they know there's more that they can do. And if they can start to ignite that little fire inside of them and said we are going to be the ones doing the actions, then then we only need to kind of give them the tools. You're talking to a lot of people who are really hungry to do something about climate change and the environment, and maybe need some like help figuring out where to start. What would your advice for those people be?、Mm-hmm. I think that's one thing that when I was studying that they're always teaching us is that you need to really look where the problem is and never design in a vacuum because that's what happens, right? Like we think, oh, this is so cool. I really want to design a solution. It's like so technological, but then you find out no one really wants it, right? Because you feel like it's cool, but is it something that's really Useful for the community. Like we keep reading these cases. Like in one community, like they felt like, oh, like we could have this like really cool solar lamps. Like we could make it happen. And then they went into that community and with all these solar solar lamps donate. But then they realized that that community they like rise when the sun rises and sleep when the sun goes down. They don't really need the solar lamps. Instead, they actually want more entertainment. They're like, oh, why don't you use the solar system to like make the TV go on? Right? Like we want to watch TV more. We don't have electricity for that. So now. That they realize that their solar system with such a small amount of electricity just to power up the lamps is not enough. So that's kind of a mismatch of like what you thought the local want and what you think is cool versus what they actually need in the in in that case. So really understanding where the need is and what problem you want to solve, what problem touches you the most, understand that problem and then take action based on that understanding.、Mm-hmm. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. One trend that I'm seeing, at least within China or potentially a lot of other developing countries, is that the civil sector, whether it's like nonprofits or a volunteer sector, is actually becoming stronger. As the country becomes more well off, you know, as China kind of leapt out of poverty,、um, there's more people who have 
a stronger sense of their own social responsibility. It's becoming a trend, and people want to take action. People have a stronger sense of citizenship, and they want to do more things, and they come together. And now there is a stronger volunteer sector. There is. A stronger community of NGOs that are ready and able to take action, but there is still a relative disconnect between this community and this sector versus the government or people who have decision-making power. They don't really have the same language systems. They don't really have the same mindset. One is more from top down, the other is more from bottom up, right? So each of them is a little bit concerned about the other. There is still a lack of trust. Like the government think, oh, all these people coming together, are they going to do something like that challenges like the status quo? Like, are they going to mess up things? There's so many of them, right? And then the volunteer sector feels like I've never talked with the government. Do they are they really going to work with us? Like, there's like really this strong. Mistrust and disconnect. So there, the the energy that comes from this volunteer sector sometimes gets misdirected or gets dissipated when it could actually be partnered with the government to be put into really effective use. So I think my key hope is to see how these two. Different energies can combine into some sort of synergy. How there can be stronger bonds built between these sectors. How each sector can have a little bit of understanding and learning about how to speak with the other sector. It comes both ways for NGOs as well. We need to learn how to speak with the government, how to use their language, and maybe decision makers can also invite these people in and open channels for them to come on board and to kind of. Jump out of the existing understanding and see maybe there would be new energy and new possibilities as this civil sector becomes more and more active. Like, don't see it as a threat, but see it as a new possibility for a lot of new actions and new energies that could happen. Data is one of our most powerful tools to fight climate change. Ice cores collected from Antarctica tell a much more complete story about the concentration of greenhouse gases in our atmosphere than weather records can. And data about the amount of carbon dioxide in our atmosphere today should be informing our infrastructure for tomorrow. You can do your part to collect data. Search for citizen scientist resources to find out what data projects near you are looking for. But you can also do your part to stop the spread of misinformation. Flag and report social media posts that have inaccurate information about climate science. Use fact-checking sites to look into things that don't seem quite right. Think critically about the sources of news that you're using. Try to identify if you're being persuaded or what viewpoint the writer might be coming from. Ask why, and how do you know? And when choices are being made in your community, like whether or not to build a new power plant or how to manage flooding, push your elected officials to rely on the most accurate climate science. It's their job to listen to you. 
and to listen to the facts. Because once you have the data, there's no denying. No Denying It, the UN Climate Action Podcast is produced by UN News and Good To Do Today. Our producer at UN News is Connor Lennon, and Natalie Hutchison is our promo and distribution manager. Our producers at Good To Do Today are Emma Jacobs, Jay Venables, and Rachel Ward. Our managing producer at UN News is Matthew Wells, and our executive producer is Mita Hosali. Braden Alexander is our audio engineer, and our theme song is by Memory Palace, courtesy of Marmoset. Additional music from Artlist. Many, many thanks to Billy Klein, Carlos Islam, Jan Herbertson, Paula Bustamante, Fang Chen, Martina Donlin, Praticia Jane, Robert Nashovsky, Regina Merkova, June Park, Ezra Sergi, Sam Tracy, Matilda Folino, Freesound.org, and the UN Environment Program. Find more stories about climate action from UN News at news.un.org.